Go to James 1 in our Bibles this morning. It is nice to go through a series or through a passage of Scripture. I kind of know what's coming up week to week, but it's also nice to uh, talk to some of you and hear feedback. And I want to clarify something from last week that I didn't think about. And um, so as we talked last week about the person who um, asks, lacks wisdom in verse 5 of James 1, he asks God, let him ask in faith without doubting. Remember the steady hand? And I had someone say, I've been asking God and trying to keep my hand steady. But we have to be careful what we, this passage does not tell us what, uh, that to ask for relief. Okay? So in various trials, we often want to ask for relief. God, give me money. God, give me health. God, give me a restored relationship. And we're asking in faith, saying, if God answers, I know God can do this. That's not what this passage is about. 2 Corinthians 12 is about asking for that, the thorn in the flesh. That passage, Paul says, I had this thorn in the flesh, and three times I asked the Lord to remove it, and three times his answer came back, my grace is sufficient. Okay, So this passage is not asking for relief, because James 1, verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom. And it's trials that reveal our lack of wisdom. So as we ask God with a steady hand, we're asking for wisdom to go through trials. We're not asking for relief. So that is different. If you want to ask for relief, it's nothing wrong with asking for relief. Or God spare the life of my loved one or whatever else your various trial is. It's not wrong to pray that. But know that this passage doesn't uh, encourage you to pray that way, 2 Corinthians 12 would, that uh, you may have a trial that you want uh, some relief, and, but this passage tells us to rejoice in our trials and ask God for wisdom. So God gives wisdom to go through trials, and if you lack money, maybe you need to be more wise in how you spend money or how you earn money. If you lack um, uh, physical health, maybe God gives you wisdom on how to diet or exercise or other things that would help your physical life. But sometimes God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what you get when you ask for wisdom. You get more grace from God to endure the trial. So this passage doesn't talk about asking for relief. It talks about asking for wisdom. So our hand is steady to God asking for wisdom. Okay, so... Hopefully that it may have confused somebody last week, and if you were confused, um, this passage doesn't deal with that uh, topic. It does deal with when we go through trials, we ask God for wisdom. So why does he transition James from verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, or when he has stood the test of um, the trials from God, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. That's actually the same Greek word, but in the context, this is, they helpfully change it from trial, 
to temptation. And it's a neutral word based on context, like we'll see the word desire or lust are mentioned a little bit later. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am be tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We'll deal with these four verses today. And it's very, very difficult. We're talking about, in Sunday school, conflict. And we have three major steps in conflict resolution with someone else. First step is to choose to please God. Second step is to repent. Third step is to love. And the, the uh, time when you would have to say, it's my fault, is probably in steps one, two, and three. All three of them. Because there's at times whenever we go through trials that we blame God for our temptation. That we're disobeying God and blaming God for our disobeying Him. So James 1.13 is going to deal with that. And it's difficult for some of us to say, it's not God's fault, it's my fault that I'm sinning. And I go through trials, I do not have to sin. When you go through various trials, you never have to sin. Is it harder? Yes. If, you, if I lack sleep a lot, I give in to sin much more easily. You're probably the same way. If I am having one trial that I'm dealing incorrectly with, it's very likely that my other trials, my other relationships, I'm going to deal incorrectly with those as well. That doesn't give me a pass. It doesn't say, well, it's just my job, or it's just my boss, or it's just my spouse, or it's just my kids, or just my parents, or it's just God that's allowing too much on my plate at once. And this passage deals with that, those incorrect thoughts. So we just had communion, and we leave communion, and James is going to address us as Christians who desire to walk with God, and we all struggle with a lack of wisdom. Trials show us that we lack wisdom. Our prayer life shows us that we lack wisdom in God's uh, faithfulness. And now we're going to see today that as we think about who's really to blame for my sin, we often, like Adam and like Eve in the garden, it's the woman that you gave me. Adam says. Now think about that statement. Adam, confronted by God with his sin, it's the woman that you, God, gave me. Adam didn't get himself a wife. God gave Eve to Adam. So in that statement, Adam is blaming Eve and blaming God in one sentence. So I don't know about you men, and I'm talking to you men. Have you ever blamed your wife for something that you did that was wrong? Shame on you! You're just like Adam. And when you talk to God like that, you're blaming God as well. God, this is the wife you gave me. Look what she's caused me to do. God, you did not give me 
a good wife. Because look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. You can't blame God for giving you something bad. It's not someone else's fault, and it's definitely not God's fault for you sinning. And in various trials, we are greatly tempted to blame God for our lack of endurance, for our lack of faithfulness, for our lack of praying without doubting. It's our fault for not resisting temptation. It's always our fault. It is always your fault whenever you sin. Always. That's what James says. Okay, And this is hard to swallow, but it is very hard to say these words. It's my fault. It's my fault. If something happens wrong at my house, I'm the dad, I'm the leader at my house, it's partially my fault. Now, if I tell my kids bad advice, or I tell them good advice, and they don't listen to my advice, and they sin, then it's their fault. But if I do nothing like Jacob did when his sons disobeyed and, and killed people, uh, because they took uh, Dinah, his, uh, their daughter, in, in Genesis, and Jacob does nothing. It's Jacob's fault. Eli, whenever he had sons who were disobeying God and they, the people are coming to the, ta the tabernacle to worship, and Eli found out that his sons were crooked and perverse, and he did nothing. It's his fault. When we stand before God, it will be us by ourselves and God. And God will not allow you to talk to him like he allowed Adam, the woman that you gave me. Or Eve, it was the serpent. You can blame people, and we have blamed people for all kinds of sin. Every time we do things that are wrong, that disobey God, and not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, so am I. Not love our neighbor as ourself. It is always our fault. But as we go through various trials, trials show us that we lack wisdom, and God says, I'll give it to you, just ask me. You hold your hand steady, and I'll place all the wisdom that you need to go through that trial so that you can please me as you go through the trial and endure. But as you go through trials, you know what happens? Trials minus endurance. That means I have trials in my life, and we all have trials. If I don't endure, this is a math equation, trials minus endurance equals temptation to sin. If I don't endure the trial, that means, and there's many ways not to endure. For instance, if you thought last week that putting out your hand asking for God to help you was asking for relief, and you say, God, I'm in this trial, give me some relief, and you demand God to relieve you of this trial. This is too much, I cannot bear this, give me relief. And every one of your prayers for days and weeks are that type of praying. God, give me something to help. If you don't give me something, I'm going to turn to a substance to help me. Because you're not coming through in my trial. I can't deal with life. That is how we live 
and, and can talk to God and how we should not talk to God, where trials will without endurance equals temptation to sin. Joseph shows us what trials with endurance looks like. He had temptation to sin, but he had this trial of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and he's, he wouldn't even be with her. He got away from temptation, and one time when she grabs him, she's, he said, you can have my coat, but you're not getting me, and he left. He fled. We are told many, many times to flee temptation, to flee youthful lusts. You don't have to give in to sin. And when we are going through trials, Satan definitely is going to come to us, like uh, Job's wife. What did Job's wife tell Job? The only, the only, if she's in heaven, she has one phrase in the Bible that is her quote, curse God and die. It's all that we know, I think, that she says. There is when trials without endurance equals temptation. Here is a lady who is married to someone who has lost, she's lost all of her kids too. Okay, not just Job's kids, it was her kids as well. She's not enduring this trial. She's mad at God. And she's taking her madness to God and vocalizing it and telling Job, Job, God is not worth serving. He is not worth enduring this. You have had trials and he has more than, because we don't know if she has any physical weakness like Job has at this point. But she's telling him, curse God and die. And that's where trials without endurance equals temptation to sin. God will give you all you need to endure. He'll give you all the wisdom you need. You just have to ask him. You ask him for wisdom. Don't ask him for relief. Because he'll give you grace and wisdom and strength and comfort. But if you respond incorrectly to the trials and you think, I am getting what I do not deserve... Wicked people deserve these trials, and I have done nothing wrong. You're forgetting how corrupt you really are. Your sin has blinded you to itself. You're really proud. We are all just pieces of dust, with life in them, waiting to go back to dust. Death in our church reminds us of that. But we can and we should, and we have all the grace we need to endure trials. If we won't endure, we'll be tempted and we'll give in to temptation from sin. So what does James 1.13 say? Trials without endurance equals temptation. But as we go through this, now the trial has turned to temptation. God cannot be involved with our temptation. God is holy. He can't even look at sin. There is no way that God is behind our temptation. So how do we need to look at this? James 1.13 says this, or yeah, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. These are all Christians that he's talking to. I am being tempted by God. God is tempting me to do what? He's tempting me to doubt him? Nope. He's not tempting you to do that. He's tempting you to give in to this temptation of fear or worry or anger or for just fulfill my lust of your flesh or lust of the eyes or the pride of life. Just give in to the temptation. It is too hard. You've gone through this trial so long. It is okay if you do this and you know this is wrong. 
It's a sin. It's in the sin list of the Bible. God is not in the involvement with your temptation. God can never be involved with our temptation. God was not giving Job's wife the words to say. Obviously, right? God was not giving Job the, oh, I wish I'd never been born, words to think and to say. Because God wanted Job to be born at that exact time in history. God was behind his birth, and God was going to be telling Job when it's time for him to go to heaven. God is not involved with the temptation, and our temptation is to never blame God for our sin. Never. If you're angry and bitter, there are a lot of Christians that are angry and bitter at God. And those angry, bitter people at God are blaming God. Like Adam, it's the woman that you gave me. God, you gave me these kids. God, you gave me this job. God, you gave me these neighbors. God, you gave me this church. And we're blaming everyone but who's really at fault. And a mature Christian's going to think this way. When I sin, it's my fault. Period. That's it. That's how mature Christians need to think. And we must think this way. Because we struggle with this. All of us do. And we sin. We want to... Who can I blame? Who can I say, well, they did it too? No, that's not helpful. That's not repentance. That is trying to cover my sin. That's trying to spread out my sin so I don't get all of the wrath that is coming to me for my sin. And we cannot blame God as God cannot be tempted with evil. So here's God allows temptation. And 1 Corinthians 10.13, I don't have it on the screen, but if you want to write that reference down, you need to memorize that because all of us struggle with temptation. And there is a time that you're going to think, I am tempted more than I am able But 1 Corinthians 10.13 slams the door on that thought and says, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You can't say, I've got more temptation than other people. I've got temptation that's weirder than other people. We just have to give in to this. Or "I, I, I can't endure this temptation. As a Christian, you can and you must. God always makes a way to escape because he is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, I have that verse memorized because I need it. I need it a lot. And every time I'm tempted, I am tempted. And part of the temptation, one facet of the temptation to sin is to think ungodly thoughts. Think God is not faithful. He's allowing this. No, God never plans my temptation. He never initiates my temptation. He never executes or carries out my temptation. So God is the innocent one. This will help us. Why will helping us, why will thinking this way help us? I think this thought from Boyd Carpenter will help us. I don't know who he is. He's an author of a commentary on James. It says this, In the stainless purity of his character, This is God's character. Lies are security. 
If saints can give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness, struggling men may take courage also, since God's purity is not against us, but for us in our conflict with evil. It is madness to throw away this sheet. And I had to look up sheet because it wasn't like I'm thinking sheet. It is a nautical rope that holds a sail. And we, I haven't heard that term before. So um, it's something that's an anchor uh, point. A sheet anchor of faith. This anchor holds. So what is he saying? God's spotless, innocent character is what we need to run to when we're tempted with various trials and not blame. That's a very helpful way to think because if I'm thinking as a mature Christian, I'm thinking God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is the one who I, I run to. I run to Christ when plagued by fear and doubt and songs have been written about this and does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for Mirth and song. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. Our God and his character is an anchor for everything in trials. And the east, or the, uh, yeah, the east side of, of um, Florida right now is getting ready for a hurricane, and they better have things tied down pretty tightly. Why? Because 100 mile an hour winds are coming. Anything that's not held down is going to be blown away, torn apart, damaged for sure. And we have various trials that blow a lot of wind. And if we don't have this anchor, we're like the picture that James gives with doubting. We're just like waves tossed here and there. And we're just so unstable. We saw that last week. And this week, what will help us to be stable is don't blame God for your sin. When you and I sin, don't blame God. You're blaming the anchor of your soul. It makes no sense. But we all do it. When pressed, when blown, when the trials are significant enough, our faith is tested, and sometimes our faith in our anchor is, is struggling. And we have our Bible to remind us the problem is not God. He's the innocent one. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us who reminds us, don't blame God. He's the innocent one. And we have a church around us, people that are walking with God, that are walking with you, next to you, in your struggle, and they will say, hey, don't blame God. He's the anchor of your soul. He's the one you hold to, you cling to in trials. He, he is not behind this. He's not behind your temptation. He might be allowing it, but he is not initiated. He's not executing it. This is... Uh, not a thought you need to be thinking. It's not helpful. You're destabilizing your soul. So what do we need to be thinking whenever we're going through trials and these trials have gone into temptation and we've this temptation looks really good? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know how many Christians are tempted? Every one of them. And all of our temptations are somewhat unique. Now, all of us have struggled with lust, all of us struggle with anger and fear and doubt and discouragement, but we have temptation that is unique to us. A temptation that my wife and I, that my wife has is different than my temptation, that's different than my kids' temptation, different than your temptation. So all of our temptation is 
uh, custom made by Satan in our heart. But here, it, Satan is not pictured. If you, if you read this passage, you won't see Satan at all. And how do we know that we're capable of committing sin without Satan? Because our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Because during the millennium, Satan is going to be bound for that thousand years, and at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a number of people, while Christ is on earth, ruling and reigning, there's going to be a number of people like the sand of the sea that are going to rebel against Jesus without Satan. And he's going to gather them up, and they're going to be destroyed again. And you can read it in Revelation 20. So, it's my fault. And James says, a mature Christian is going to take the blame for their sin. How does temptation work? If you want to go fishing, and I went fishing one time this summer, I usually go fishing once about every 10 years. I love fishing. And my kids don't care for fishing. My dad doesn't care for fishing. He took us, and I would never touch a fish. I didn't like touching worms. And so I'm like, you know what? Fishing's not for me. My kids want to try fishing, so we tried fishing. We tried at like 3 in the afternoon, 90 degrees outside. We're standing in the sun and traipsing through high weeds on my great uncle's farm. We got zero bites, and we're trying to find worms. You can't even find earthworms when it's 90 degrees outside uh, and dry, and like this is bad fishing. So we tried to find worms, we didn't find any worms, and we're like, we gave up after a few, few minutes uh, of trying to fish. What's funny about this, my uh, great uncle's son, which is my mom's cousin, he's a professional fisherman, professional. Like he, it was in, he, when I was in Ohio, he was in Vermont on this fun fishing thing. Uh, he just loves, loves fishing. But he wasn't there to help us. So we're on our own. And you know what we lacked that day? We lacked something that would allure fish. This text here talks about, verse 14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Those are two words that both have a fishing connotation. Something looks good, something may taste good. Something I want to enjoy. This is like lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. So something that looks good to us, something that feels good to us. And I don't know about you, but I know vengeance is mine, our pace says the Lord, but there are some times that vengeance feels really good. For instance, driving down the road, and this is an ungodly thought, okay? But I've had this thought. Someone flies by you. I mean, you're going the speed limit or a little above, and they fly by you. I mean, not even close to the speed limit. You're like, what? This is so unsafe. And then you drive five miles down the road and that person's pulled over by the police and you're like, yes, that's great. I'm so glad that that person got it because they deserve that. And that wasn't me giving them vengeance, but I rejoiced in their judgment. You may have someone that you see behind you in traffic and they are doing the weave, trying to get ahead, and you pull over and you drive the speed limit. And they're up, up on your tail and you're like, oh no. No, no, no. We're not doing this. You're going to stay in your lane and you're not getting ahead. And, and you feel good about your, um, 
doing a little bit to keep the world a better place while making this person really mad at you. Or maybe someone does something to you and you think, oh man, if I could just get them back, pay a prank on them or something and make them look dumb and you pull it off and you feel really good about yourself. That is not what this text is about. We all have custom desires and temptations. And when we are lured and enticed, we are lured and enticed by our own desires. You know why I get angry? Because anger is something that I like. You know why I try to get vengeance at times? Because vengeance is something that I like. You know why I worry at times? Because worry is something that I like. You know why I gossip at times? Because gossip is something that I like. You put whatever sin that you do in that blank, and you know why you do that? Because you like to do it. You know why you like to do it? Because you're lured and enticed by your own sinful desires. It feels good at times, at least for temporary. As a Christian, it feels good at times to sin. And we see temptation all around us. You go to the grocery store line and you see magazine covers that are full of temptation. You watch Entertainment Tonight and any show with celebrities and they, you will see all kinds of temptation. You watch HGTV. You look at how they fix up those houses and you're like, oh, thou shalt not covet, but that is really nice and my house does not look like that. And you're really tempted. You know why David killed Uriah? Because David was tempted, and it felt good to get rid of Uriah. You know, Uriah was one of his 39 mighty men. He's listed. He got rid of one of his own. You know why? Because he followed this pattern of his own lust, his own desires. He was enticed to sin, and he gave in to it. So what's this say about my, it's my fault? I am responsible for my own regular temptation. You do not have to be tempted above your able. God will give you a way to escape. Joseph is an example of that. But if you're like Lot and build your tent in Sodom and you surround yourself with wickedness and then you start giving in to that wickedness, you will start grieving your soul as Lot was a righteous man and grieved, vexed his righteous soul in Sodom. You fill your mind with trash and sin on TV, on the internet, and you wonder why you can't say no to sin or temptation anymore. You have, you're giving into it. I've heard it explained that no kid is born, no child is born with a, with a strong desire, a covetous heart for Nike tennis shoes. That is a desire that is growing. You know how the desire grows? They go to school. They look around. I'm the only one without Nike tennis shoes. So they come home. Mom, Dad, I need these. So you go to the Nike outlet store that I do, and I would go to the clearance rack and say, okay, here's your budget. And I won't tell you what the budget is, but it's low. And I walk past the shoes that are 150 bucks and 180 bucks. but that's what, if you're the cool kids, that's the shoes you got to wear. No, Dad, we got to have these. These are the Nikes that... No, we don't have to please all those other kids. We just have to do with what God has given us. 
and God hasn't given us multi-million dollars in the bank, so those that's not the budget for shoes. <laughs> and you're going to wear them out anyway because you're still growing. So we're going to keep going. But you know, we can customize our lusts. We can, by what we watch, by who we hang out with, by how they talk about their sin, we can say, oh, I wish I could have that, or I wish I could be like that, or I wish I could enjoy that sin, like you're enjoying that sin, and we can customize our lusts. And our, our uh, sexual desires can be customized, our desires for houses and Cars and clothes and everything can be customized. Our desire can grow so bad that we are willing to disobey God and his word to fulfill the lusts of our flesh and the lust of our eyes. But who's guilty? I'm the guilty one. I am responsible for what my flesh really likes. I've listened to some very ungodly music in the past and my flesh really liked it. And if I didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of me saying, you shouldn't be listening to that music. And I've seen things on YouTube or other uh, videos that I'm like, wow, I, would, I could really see myself getting into that. But the Holy Spirit inside of me says, no, you can't enjoy that. That's sin. I'm guilty for my sin. You're guilty for your sin. Kids, you are guilty for your sin. It's not your parents' fault. And if you're 20, 30, 50, 70 years old and you're still blaming other people for your sin, you are guilty for your sin. You're responsible for your disobedience to God. And you are responsible for what your flesh really likes. You are not to feed your flesh. You are to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's what's expected of all disciples of Christ. And if you're a Christian, your disciple of Christ. And when we're not following Christ, James is going to get in our face and say, you're the guilty one. Don't blame God. Don't blame other people. You're the one. Where does this progression lead? We're not full. We probably know the progression in verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, it brings, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire coupled with just a sight. And we can be, you could be blind and still struggle with a lust of the eyes. You could have other physical weakness and still struggle with lust of the flesh. But all it takes is sometimes a thought. I can be praying sometimes, and a thought comes in my mind, and my mind starts going down this thought road. Like, where did that come from? I haven't watched things that I shouldn't watch uh, for a long time, and I'm still thinking. When I was a kid, watched soap operas, and I still have visual images of when I watched soap operas with my grandmother. Like, where did that come from? It's stored in my mind, and my wicked heart at the worst times, can bring up those images and, hey, think about this. This would be good to act this out with this person or that person. Oh, no. The chain of temptation starts with my desires, and I'm responsible for my desires. They're deceitful desires. They have to be um, denied. They have to be actually put to death. Several passages in Ephesians and, and Colossians say, mortify 
your desires. Mortify your flesh. That means put it to death. So every time it starts raising its ugly head inside of you, it's like, hey, you really need this. You need to go down this path. No, no, you're dead. I'm dead to you. I've got to think this way. Romans 6 says, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. I have to obey God. I don't have to obey my own desires. The chain of temptation starts with my desires. It continues with disobedience, which is sin. So desires to disobedience, and then where does it end? Satan wants all of us to disobey. Why? So that we are useless to God and useful to him in dishonoring God and following him, and then he promises us life and the good life, the fun life, and that's what the world says, and they're having a lot, they're drinking it up, they're living it up, um, and it leads them empty. It leads them disobedient to God, following their wicked desires, and it ends up killing them. The chain of temptation results in my death. Why in the world would I want to be tempted with sin? It makes no sense. And James says, here's the, here's the progression. Finishing this up. I deceive myself in um, verse 16, and I blame God for my temptation. So James says here and a few other places in James, don't deceive yourself. It is the, it's the dumbest thing to believe lies. What's even worse is you believe your own lies. That it's someone else's fault for my sin. That's a lie because we've, told, we've learned here, James says it's your fault. Here's how you have sinned. You followed your own desires. And your own desires were enticed. You were led along like a fish um, to snap at a worm that has a hook inside of it. Don't be deceived, my beloved brother. So James brings this down and says, you guys are my close brothers in Christ. Here we are as brothers in the family of God. We should not be deceiving ourselves. And deceit often is um, something that is private. It's often in our mind, in our heart, and comes out whenever we act on that temptation. But I can't blame God for my temptation. I deceive God, or I deceive myself and blame God for my sinful desires. God made me with certain desires. And if I will exercise those desires as God wants them to be exercised, I will use those desires to bring glory to God. But I say, oh no, this is my body. I will do with it whatever I want to do with it. And shake my fist in God's face. I will use my body to dishonor God. And then I will blame God for my consequences or my temptation or my death. I deceive myself and blame God for my sinful desires, and then I deceive myself and blame God <clears throat> for my death. <coughs> I probably could have put second point there, I deceive myself and blame God for my sinful choices or disobedience. God does not want us to disobey him. He's done everything he can and will do, continue to do for us so that we obey him. And so we can't blame God for our temptation or desires. We can't blame God for our disobedience. And we can't blame God for our death. And verse 16 may be with the next passage, uh, with the next section, but uh, it does, it's, a, it's a bridge. And so we'll refer to verse 16 next week as we look at the transition. But it does fit well with um, deceiving ourselves with our temptation and the progression. So I'm going to give application with two prayers. 
based on what we've learned. If I just gave you truth today, you say, that's great. Okay, it's my fault. But how does that help me to live every day? If I will stop blaming my wife for my sin, I should have a better marriage. If I'll stop blaming my kids for my sin, when I lose my temper with them, I'll be a better parent. If I will stop blaming anyone at church for having whatever I can blame you for, I'll be a better pastor. All the responsibility that God has given to me, if I will stop blaming others and blaming God, I will take full responsibility and I will be humbled on a regular basis when I think I am at fault for my sin. It's my fault. It's my fault I have these desires. It's my fault I exercise these desires in opposition to God. And it's my fault that one day I'm going to die. It's my fault. And then, and only then, can God use me to help others to see. So how should I pray? And I'm going to focus the application on two prayers based on what we learn. So instead of blaming God for my sin, I'm asking God to forgive me for blaming you for my temptation, my sin nature, my disobedience, and my death. And then I'm thanking God as we just celebrated today the Lord's table for sending Jesus to conquer all temptation. He conquered all sin. He conquered all of death. And I preached a um, Easter message on that, on that, how Jesus conquered all three of these things. Help me to cling to you in my trials and my temptations. Don't blame God. You run to God. So that's not just how we think. This is how we live. And James is all about giving us wisdom so that we take the knowledge that he has given us and we put it into practice. It will change the way you think, yes, but it'll also change the way you talk. It'll change the way you interact with other people. And it should change the way you pray. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a forgiving God. Please forgive me for blaming you for my temptation, my disobedience, and my death. Forgive us as a church for blaming you, for tempting us as a church, for getting stuck in ruts here and traditions and other unhelpful things, and for all of us eventually dying. We thank you so much, Father, for sending Christ, your Son, to defeat all of temptation and sin and death for us. I pray that you would help us every time we are tempted to cling to you and to ask you for wisdom on how to escape this temptation and not blame you ever again. Convict us quickly whenever we do what James encouraged us not to do. Help us to be mature Christians that will help others to grow and change so that you can use us here to rescue, help rescue people all around us. And I pray for the uh, people that heard the gospel this week at sports nights, that they would come to you and cry out to you for salvation. Those that we talked to this Saturday at Old Home Day, you would help us to encourage them to cry out to you for 
salvation and come to Christ who alone can rescue them from their sin. And I pray that you would use us as a church uh, to be men and women of the word and we can help each other as Christians to grow and change to be more like our Savior who never blamed you for his temptation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.